Yeah, all of my books are heavily, heavily peer-reviewed. Published by top academic presses. It was written by a gentleman named Hecateus of Abdera, who was writing a history of Egypt. Manetho, who was an Egyptian priest, echoes of Manetho in the biblical Exodus story, which is really responding against some of the slanderous things that he wrote. A really major source was Plato's Laws. Plato's Laws was the last dialogue that Plato wrote. He uh, talked about how to create the constitution and laws for a new nation, a new colony. He said that uh, in order for any new nation to succeed, you had to persuade the citizens that their new laws were actually ancient, given by the gods, unchanged since the dawn of time. It was basically theocratic that uh, God was ruling the nation through these divine laws and through a council of theologians and priests and things. So, a lot of this comes from Plato. None of it comes from the Hebrew Bible. I mean, it's, it's totally different from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Moses never made it into the Promised Land, much less built Jerusalem's temple and so forth. And welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today I'm joined by Russell Gamerkin, author of Plato and the Creation of the Hebrew Bible. Also, he has a website, russellgamerkin.com, which I'm showing on the screen right now. Go and check that out. Check out the links that are on there. And um, since we uh, mentioned the book Plato and the Creation of the Hebrew Bible, some people might be watching this and be, are, they might be familiar with this, but there might be some people who aren't. So why don't we lay it out? What was this book about? And what kind of uh, what kind of new ideas are you bringing to the table of scholarship in the ancient world? Yeah, Plato and the creation of the Hebrew Bible was a very systematic comparison of the laws of Moses in the Bible, uh, Greek laws, and the laws of the ancient Near East. It was very comprehensive. Um, you know, every law in all three of those categories were systematically compared to see whether the biblical laws more closely resembled um, Greek laws or those of the ancient Near East. Now, traditionally, uh, scholars have said the books of Rose, Moses were written, uh, you know, in the Persian era or earlier, and so Greek influences were just uh, excluded based on that assumption, that working assumption. Uh, but there's the first evidence for the Hebrew Bible is actually the translation into uh, Greek around 270 BC. So we don't really know um, how much earlier uh, the books of Moses were written. Um, and so it's conceivable there were Greek influences. And my book very systematically uh, explored the evidence and concluded that there is quite a bit of Greek influence. Wow. 
All right. So I want to get into what those influences are. The norm is that there was these texts like Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, uh, whatever, Genesis, whatever it is, Psalms. And they were, these are Hebrew texts, part of the Hebrew world. And um, they were translated from Hebrew into Greek in the time that you mentioned, third century BCE. Ptolemy, Ptolemy the second or third or whatever. But you're saying that the Hebrew Bible actually comes after the Greek. Um, what what I concluded um, based on my first two books is that uh, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, were written in Hebrew, but they used lots of Greek sources. And then they were immediately translated into Greek. Uh, at the Great Library of Alexandria, where the team of scholars who wrote the books of Moses did their research, wrote the Pentateuch in Hebrew, and also created a, a Greek edition of, of those same books. So it was all practically uh, simultaneous. That makes sense. So you, so, you, so you think like there's Hebrew scrolls being written, and they're they're being taken around the time that they're being written. They're also being taken to Alexandria and copied into Greek. And then the Greeks are putting it all into one collection, whereas the Hebrews have them all separately floating in different areas by different people. Does that make sense? Or is that something different? Um, well, the way the Septuagint translation came about is King Ptolemy II, Philadelphus. He had heard... Uh, rumors that there were ancient laws of Moses that the Jews possessed. So he invited a team of scholars to Alexandria uh, to, to create a, 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 an official version of those laws for the great library of Alexandria. And so they actually did research in international laws there, uh, wrote the books of Moses, um, well, and published them immediately in both the Hebrew and Greek translation. Uh, so Alexandria is really where it was all happening. They had just a few earlier written scrolls, I imagine, uh, but not much. And then after that date, around 270 BC, is when most of the rest of the Hebrew Bible was written, according to my reconstruction. Wow, interesting. Now let's all right, I just wanted to get that out the way before I ask you what 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 are the influences and from the Greek that you see that you think are clear coming from the Greek side? Sure. Well, when we start with um with Genesis, um you have a Babylonian priest named Barosis who was writing in Greek. And he had an account um, of the Babylonian traditions of creation and of the 10 generations before the flood and the flood story and so on and so forth. That is just remarkably like uh, early Genesis. So there's one influence. Um, another Greek influence was around 320 BC. There was a fictional story about the foundation of Judea by a figure named Moses uh, from Egypt. 
that uh, was written by a gentleman named Hecateus of Abdera, who was writing uh, a history of Egypt uh, for the Ptolemies. And uh, then you have uh, Manetho, who was an Egyptian priest. And uh, there's some echoes of Manetho in the biblical Exodus story, which is really responding against some of the slanderous things that he wrote. But uh, a really major source was uh, Plato's Laws. Plato's Laws was the last dialogue that Plato wrote. He uh, talked about how to create uh, a constitution and laws for a new nation, a new colony. Um, he said that uh, in order for any new nation to succeed, you had to persuade the citizens that their new laws were actually ancient, given by the gods, unchanged since the dawn of time, um, divine. He, he invented a form of government uh, that was basically theocratic, that uh, God was ruling the nation through these divine laws and through a council of theologians and priests and things. So uh, he laid out this whole, and he also said that you had to create a national literature in support of these laws that had, uh, it was all sacred and authoritative and that everyone in the nation should only rely on those written sources uh, and, and couldn't read anything else uh, because, uh, it would probably tell a different story than their new national origin story. So uh, he wrote all of it. He had lots of laws that he proposed and constitutional features. And lots of those are found uh, in the books of Moses. There's a lot of uh, very direct uh, use of Greek laws, of Plato's laws, of uh, constitutional literature from Athens and Greece and, and Plato specifically. The 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, there's no 12 tribe organization anywhere in the ancient Near East, but it's found throughout the Greek world. And it's also, uh, Plato said that was the ideal form of uh, organization of a nation in the 12 tribes so that every Every month, a new tribe would have the responsibility of running the Senate and this and that. Hmm. So there's uh, just really pervasive Greek influences, uh, which have been ignored for, uh, you know, 2,000 years because everyone assumed that uh, these writings were as old as they claimed to be and when they were much younger. Now, that's interesting because when, when we look at how Plato opposes Homer, he makes a big deal out of Homer's no good. You know, Achilles, Achilles and, and Hades crying? No, we got to have our, our heroes got to be in the good heaven and the bad people got to be in the bad place. And so he's you already see Plato's lining himself up with with what would be what we what we would consider the cosmology of the Hebrew Bible. And then the later on these Christians that are coming out of Alexandria People don't talk about this enough. They're all Platonist. Yeah. The earliest Christians that we know about 
especially the ones who are later deemed as heretics, they're all of them. Like we even have a group of Christians that are called the Carpocratians in Alexandria who not only worship Jesus, but these are the first Christians that have statues of Jesus, by the way. The Catholics borrowed from this. But they didn't just have statues of Jesus. Check this out. They had statues of Plato and Pythagoras, too. Yeah, all the philosophers. So this is this Christianity, Judaism. These are religions of Plato right here. And I'm just I'm just adding that. I'm just throwing that out there because I think what you're saying is completely plausible. Now, has anybody... Has there anybody, anybody, a big opposition to you yet, or anybody coming along and trying to debunk this, or you know, discredit you? Because this is a big change in the normal way of looking at this, right? Um, it is. Um, you know, there have been some um, semi-negative reviews. Um, John Van Cedar wrote a bad review of my first book because. Uh, I disagree with him on a few things. And so he's one of those scholars that takes a defensive position with yeah. regard to their reputation. Um, and, you know, um, especially in America, where there's more, you know, uh, study of the Hebrew Bible comes out of seminaries, and there's more of a conserv conservative viewpoint. Yeah. So there have been some that have, you know, disagreed with minors. But in Europe, um, I've gotten very favorable reviews. Um, not necessarily outright endorsements, but recognitions that uh, my writings are important, well-researched, and, uh, you know, well worth reading. And it's interesting. Have you gone through the review process? Excuse me? Have you gone through the peer review process? Oh, sir. Yeah. Yeah. All of my books are heavily, heavily peer reviewed. Wow. That's amazing. So and they're published by top academic presses, you know, yeah. Rutland, uh, Continuum International. And I, I want to stress that to the audience right now. This isn't just, this isn't just some random fringe position. You're, you're going yeah. through the process and you're doing, you're making sure your your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted and you're peer reviewed and you're you're doing the research. You're not just coming up with wild macro perspective theories, bird's eye view theories on history. Yeah. You're looking at the logistics of this. You're looking at this piece by piece and saying, okay, when do we first see a, 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 an Old Testament? And the answer is, we don't see if we don't hear about an Old Testament. There's no reference to an Old Testament until third century BC. Now. Okay. I, I want to ask you about Hecate. What is the Hecateus? Hecateus of Abdera. Of Abdera. Yeah. What does he write down, and when? When is this, and what is he? And, and do we have this, or do we have fragments of it? What What's left of that? Yeah, <laughs> he uh, he wrote his book called the uh, Egyptiaca, or you know, on Egypt. He wrote it between three twenty and three fifteen BC. Is when it's dated. Uh, he was in Egypt, um, and he wrote this history so that the first Greek king, Ptolemy the first, Soter, who was one of Alexander's generals, so he'd know something about this nation that he was ruling. So he went through the history, the laws, all sorts of stuff. Um, 
And he also wrote a bunch of uh, foundation stories because the, the Egyptians who, they were this conquered civilization, so they were trying to um, live, live in the glories of the past. So uh, they claimed that they had sent colonies throughout the world. You know, they uh, founded not just Judea, but Babylon, Colchis on the Dead Sea, all the major uh, Greek metropolises. Um, you know, all of those were founded by the Egyptians, according to the Egyptians. Hecateus, you know, reported some of these claims. And uh, one of them was that um, an Egyptian named Moses, this is the first appearance of the name Moses in any literature in the world, that an Egyptian named Moses led a colonizing expedition from Egypt to Judea, which was uh, uninhabited at the time. And that uh, this Moses, uh, you know, he, he was leading it because Egyptians had too many people. It was an overpopulation problem. So he brings them to Judea. He founds Jerusalem. He founds Jerusalem's temple. He establishes its uh, constitution and laws and ways of life. Um, and organizes them into 12 tribes. Um, so a lot of this comes from Plato. None of it comes from the Hebrew Bible. I mean, it's, it's totally different from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Moses never made it into the Promised Land, much less built Jerusalem's temple and so on and so forth. So he wrote this fictional uh, <clears throat> foundation story and it was um, it was quoted by a later writer named uh, Theophilus of uh, Mytilene and then he was in turn uh, quoted by Theodorus of Sicily and so we have uh, we have his foundation story and uh, I think it's book 42 of Theodorus and, you know, we have a lot of it. Yeah, Diodorus of Sicily, he gave us a lot of these histories that are very fascinating. Um, and also you have, I think, with Tacitus in Book 5, when he gives his history of the Jews, it's not the one we, it's not the same as the Old Testament. It's a lot yeah. different. And he talks about how, you know, I want, I don't, I'm, if you're familiar with Tacitus, how much does Tacitus line up with, the story that you were talking about with Hecate, uh, with uh, Hecate, what's his name? Hecateus. Hecateus. I, I remember that. Yeah. How much is Hecateus and uh, Tat and um, Tacitus? Tacitus it's, overlap, yeah. Not, not a whole lot. Tacitus is more relying on, uh, I think it's Pythamicus and Appion and a couple later Greek writers in Egypt who uh, they relied on very defamatory uh, traditions in, in Manasa. So um, these other people, Sheremon and others, they, they claimed that the Jews were uh, 
from Crete. Out of the bunch of lepers who yeah. uh, invaded, you know, uh, and that they were uh, impious. They had an ass in the temple and all, all sorts of very slanderous things. The, the Egyptians, um, they're, they're the source of anti-Semitism in the ancient world. And <clears throat> it's largely because when the Persians invaded Egypt and conquered it, they used uh, Jewish troops, among others, and they posted Jews in their military colonies. So the Jews were associated with oppressors from Asia. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of animosity there. Um, and Tacitus more relies on that dream than Hexaeus. Uh, but uh, still, it's, um, it's not, not biblical. Sure. Yeah, that is interesting. Now, with um, with what's because when you when we go back, the farther we go back, the less we hear about Jerusalem is Israel. For example, Herodotus doesn't even mention Israel. Nothing. He's he's like, okay, there's Syria, there's Phoenicia, there's Arabia, and then there's Egypt. That's it. Like, wait, yeah. wait, wait. We skip one. We, it's almost like there's nothing. My. I'm going to ask you because I know you. I know you're looking for this. You have to be looking for it. What do we have? What's the first time Israel's even mentioned, and what in what form? Yeah, Herodotus talked about every people in the Mediterranean world that the Greeks came into contact with, rumored anything. Uh, the Greeks were seagoing; uh, they were traders. So they were very familiar with all the coasts around the Mediterranean and Black Sea and whatever. When you go inland, their knowledge kind of evaporates. And Herodotus, I mean, he talked about these mythical Hyperboreans who lived beyond the North Wind and the Aramasts, which were a race of one-eyed horsemen and all yeah. sorts of stuff. You know. Gold garden griffins and then ants that dig uh, gold. He's got a lot of funny stories. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I've I've written on him, but I haven't published yet. But I've had some research there. Too. So uh, he he knows the coast, eleventeen coasts from Syria to Egypt, but he doesn't know the interior. In fact, nobody in the entire Greek world. And uh, all of classical literature mentions Judea or the Jews. Um, not until after the time of Alexander the Great, you know, he conquered that area, and uh, you start getting some references to the Dead Sea and the Jews. Uh, you know, after that time, but not before. They they had no idea that you know they didn't have a clue of the existence of. Jews or Samaritans or any of that. It's like they didn't exist. And yet, even though there was no contact between the Greek world and the Jews and Samaritans, you have all this um, reliance on Greek sources in the Jewish Bible. I mean, there's, they used Homer, they use Hesiod, they use Plato, um, all of these older Greek writers. And the question is, 
since they weren't in contact with the Greek world, how did they get that knowledge? Well, all the books in the world were collected in the Great Library of Alexandria. And Jews are known to have visited that library for that literary project. And they could learn all about the literature of the past and the whole Greek world and <coughs> Athenian laws and everything. So it, it's, uh, it's something that arrived, that knowledge arrived to the Jewish world through books uh, at, a, at a late date. And if I'm not mistaken, Plato through the mouth of Socrates is really strange. And, and this is actually preserved in one of um, Eusebius's texts where Eusebius is in the preparation for the gospel. It's one, I forgot which, which, which text it is, but Socrates is talking about Judea and saying that they're, they're related to the Indians, like the far East Indians. Uh, I wonder what's going on. If you're, if you're familiar with this text or not, um, that's not actually Plato. There were some uh, later uh, people. There was uh, someone who uh, allegedly had an encounter with Aristotle. Yes, who, okay, you're right, you're right. My Good, yeah. good correction, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he claimed that uh, Jews were an ancient race of philosophers and they were related to the Indian uh, gymnostophists, which were basically... I don't know, gurus or whatever, um, Indian Brahmin religion, something. Um, and there were, I don't know, two or three sources um, in the early 200s BC that uh, said that these were a race of philosophers. There was, uh, and had connections with India and, and other places. But it wasn't, um, it wasn't in Plato's time. It was really uh, after the time of Alexandria. Alexander that uh, these first rumors, very inaccurate rumors about the Jews, started to arise in the Greek world. And and when you get so when we look at the evidence that we have as far as the Hezekiah stone, the Mesha Stella, what is what does that tell us about? Does it tell us there we those king that the kings are legit the, that the king line that they talk about in gen, in uh in chronicles and kings that those are historical kings? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, the um, the book of kings cites two sources. There's the royal annals of Israel, uh, and there's the royal annals of Judah, and um, Inscriptional sources, the Assyrians, the Mesa Stella that you mentioned, um, they really line up with the names of the kings of um, Israel or Omri or Samaria, the northern kingdom. It's pretty much confirmed as far as the names and the dates, starting with the time of Omri and Ahab. Not earlier, but starting with them. Uh, seems to record accurate data. Judah, it's a different situation. Um, you find the first mention of Judah and the kings of Judah with uh, Jehoram, who was a king in 735 BC. Uh, so this is practically the time of Hezekiah. It's just almost the time when 
Samaria fell. So the earlier kings of, uh, of both Judah and Israel, you know, going back to Solomon, are not corroborated by uh, inscriptions, and uh, you know, they probably weren't kings. There's no yeah. evidence yeah. for it. Okay, okay. interesting. So like, so, like ruling a city state of maybe the city of Jerusalem, you would say? Well, I there's a possibility that some of these were governors uh, of Jerusalem. Gotcha. But, but that territory of Jerusalem and Judea um, appears to have been ruled by Samaria and by the northern kingdom. Uh, from the time of Ahab there down to the time of uh, Jehoram, so That's it was it was part of the Northern Kingdom. They uh, Ahab and his successors they ruled uh, parts of the Trans Jordan. They uh, controlled the trade routes south clear to the Red Sea, uh, and uh, there's just no reason why they wouldn't have ruled Jerusalem as well. It's interesting how that's the opposite of the story we get in the text, where yeah. it seems like Jerusalem's the head of power, and the north is like this. They're you know those crazy people in the north. They need to get to yeah. get it together. Interesting how that works. Now I asked you about this before, but I I want to bring this up again. Is the it's there seems there seems to be some reflection of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which we see in Hammurabi's code going mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. Is this is this based off what Plato said is you want your codes to look like they're the most ancient? Is that what they're doing here? Is that what you think? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. He uh, Plato said that you have to convince the citizens by any means possible that their law code uh, was incredibly ancient and given by the gods to the founding generation. And you know, by hook or by crook, any any way you can do do this, uh, you're supposed to. That's what you're supposed to convince your citizens. Uh, so he recommended the, a new nation to uh, <clears throat> to keep on the old temples, the old gods, the old priesthoods, uh, old uh, <clears throat> heroes, and traditions as much as possible. And uh, so here in the Hellenistic era in 270 BC, uh, <clears throat> they still had a few traditions about the laws of Hammurabi floating around, especially in <clears throat> Samaria, which had a significant uh, Babylonian uh, component. Because when Samaria fell, their kings and educated elites, they were taken off into exile. And Babylonians were brought in to replace them. So uh, these Babylonian educated elites, they lived in Samaria ever since about 710 BC. And of course, they would remember the laws of Hammurabi and various other things. Yeah. And, it, <clears throat> and so the biblical authors incorporated whatever they could to make things seem older. Now, one of the things that comes to mind is I'm not, I, I never asked you about this. This, is, this will be new for me and you. When we look at Sanko Niathan, is an ancient priest from, from Beirut. 
supposedly he collected tech from the temples that were left over from the Bronze Age. Probably not true because there seems to be euhemerous slant going on with these texts. Yeah. Saturn yeah. ruling is actually a human ruling. And like Saturn sacrifices his only son, Judah, or Yahud, I guess his name is, to his father, Aronos, who's in heaven. So mm-hmm. you're like, whoa, that looks like Genesis. That looks like Abraham and Isaac. And so what's going on there? Have you thought about this or, or dug into it? Dig, did they digging into this yet? Well, so he wrote a... Um... I think it was called a Phoenician history. Is that what they labeled it? So uh, there was a lot of common culture between the Phoenicians and the Northern Kingdom. And, um, you know, Judah, which was kind of a satellite of Samaria and Israel, um, they had a lot of gods in common, you know, the Canaanite gods. And a lot of traditions, some of the heroes were the same. And so you get overlap. You get a lot of um, interesting intersections. And um, so then Kuntion, or however you pronounce it, uh, he may have had some older, that book may have had some older materials, although it was revised and rewritten uh, in the Hellenistic era by someone who did you know, he was a follower of Euhemerus. He, he turned the gods into humans. And, uh, you know. However, however, there are, there are some scholars who have pointed out. We'll echo there. Hold on. It'll go away. Okay. There are some scholars who pointed out that even though there's clearly a Euhemerus slant happening, so we know the text is written later, it, 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 is, it is strikingly interesting that the author knows the names of the gods from the ancient past that would have been forgotten. They These gods would not have been known in his time. So he had to have at least been access to something or some oral tradition that brings him back to this point. I'm not saying that he did have actual text, but I'm saying the names of the gods in this text are actually, they do line up with the Ugaritic gods. Yeah, and, and one god that he mentions is uh, Elion who yeah. is the same as El Elyon. Saturn. Uh, the highest. Yeah, but and they, they call it, they say El or Kronos, and they say the Eli, right. the Elohim or the Crony. And by the way, Saturn, whose day is revered on the seventh day, is the highest orbit in the sky. He's the most high. So there's a lot to think about there. There's a lot of parallels happening with Saturn and El. And and, and the, the Sanko and Nathan's text just ties it all together for you and just tells you yeah this is l l is saturn here you go and like i i think that's it's clear it's there's to me that's slam dunk, dunk case closed so uh but anyway so that's uh, there's a lot of interesting um strange traditions that are fascinating there um there's there's a lot in the bible that's it's that's more exotic than people imagine because we we read the bible through the filter of judaism and christianity in the modern world but uh there was a lot of you know canaanite and strange things going on and uh text like that it sheds a little bit of light into the ancient world 
yeah um they're so the phrygians worshipped a version of this god named sabazios or sabazios and this is like a sort of like a mix of saturn and dionysus because you have the bacchic cries the yao yao sabao sabao but you also but it's not it's not just dionysus it looks like saturn like it looks like a a god who is with the beard and he's he's a father type of figure so there must be so there's some sort of like dual thing happening there uh but the reason why i'm bringing that up is because some of these later writers like Tacitus, for example or plutarch even does this plutarch thinks that the yahweh is equal to dionysus and um yeah they're even like oh when pompey the Great sacked the temple the only thing they found was a a uh, ivy diadem, which is what Dionysus wears. And uh, what was the other thing I was gonna? They, were, they said um, Dionysus had his ass too, uh, which is very the There's a lot of yeah. Moses motifs going on too. Yeah. So what I mean, I'm yeah Dionysus he he uh, I believe I'm trying to think if he struck something with his that anyway like milk and honey float out of the ground uh that's pretty mosaic yeah yeah and and so and another thing is to get back to herodotus i'm jumping around a lot but herodotus when he's talking about arabia which probably could be considered judea if you're we're close but the reason why i'm bringing this up is that he says that they're only there's only two gods that are worshipped dionysus and venus and then Venus, Alala, or L A L L A T, right? And then he says, "I forgot the name of the god." The other one was, but he says, "Yeah, it's basically Dionysus." So you have close to monotheism. It's, it's two gods, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering what's going on with that, or if you think if you if you looked into that at all. Well, yeah, and um, I think it was uh, Aristobulus in his commentary on the laws of Moses. I think he casually mentions that, uh, you know, the Jewish God is the same as, as Jove, you know, or Duke, yeah. basically. So, um, you know, among the Hellenists, uh, both Jewish and, uh, and Greek, um, there were a lot of identifications of the gods of one country and another, and it was not a huge deal. That's a good point. Um, lots of equations between Greek gods and Egyptian gods. That's very famous in Herodotus and later writers as well. Um, so there's another text from her, uh, for Josephus where he mentions that Moses was called Osiris. And then you also have from some people saying that Joseph is identified with Osiris. Some people even going as far as saying that the gods, this is in the Talmud, by the way, that Serapis, who's worshipped in in, Ser, in Alexandria, is Joseph deified. I don't know if you've ever looked into this at all, or is this way out of your, if you have not even touched well, it. Um, I think we're talking about Moses being equated with the figure Osarthus. Okay. Uh, who in one of the stories of Manetho, um, Manetho had two stories about the Jews, uh, foundation stories. The first one he said, the Hyksos, uh, 
shepherd kings invaded Egypt, conquered it. It was bad to all the Egyptian gods. Uh, they were, um, and they were finally expelled into Judea and founded Jerusalem and its temple and so on and so forth. So, um, Josephus basically equates the Hyksos with, with the Jews. But in a later time, in the time of, um, the Ramses kings, uh, there was another figure called Osarseth, who was a priest of uh, Seth Typhon, who was the god of chaos. Um, and he was a priest, and he was expelled from the priesthood. Uh, I forget if he was a leper or only his followers were lepers. And they staged a revolt and took over Egypt and destroyed the gods, brought back the Hyksos. And they were expelled back into Judea also a second time. Wow. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and Manetho says, and some people in my day, some of my contemporaries, say, Osiris was the same as Moses. Um, that's all he says. And he's really talking about the Moses mentioned by Hecate of Adera, the one who colonized Judea. He's not talking about the biblical Moses. Um, right. So the Egyptians had these myths of uh, the periodic uh, expulsion of Asiatic conquerors back into Asia. Um, that happened again in the time of the Persians and Cambyses. And there was a recurrent motif. And uh, the Egyptians, some Egyptians uh, linked Moses into all of that and turned him into a, a bad guy like Osar Seth. Wow. And a demon. And I go into in my first book, uh, Barosis and Genesis. I've got a couple chapters on Manetho. And the relationship between Manetho and uh, facts of the story. Uh, but uh, so that's where the Moses uh, Osarsef connection comes in. And of course, or Osarsef, uh, his name is, has the theophoric uh, element, Osiris, you know. Part of his name is the god Osiris. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. Um, Wow, because then you have him, if him being the, so there's a whole other can of worms that comes from that because he's the high priest of the god Set. And yeah. there's the, like we like you mentioned, with these alternate historians like Tacitus and Plutarch who think that yeah. Set is this uh, desert donkey deity. But yeah. Tacitus even goes as far as saying that on the seventh day in the desert, they were starving and thirsty right right the donkey leads them to water and says that so ever since that day they worship the image of the donkey and, the, and he said but they you know but you know they also might be it might be saturn too we don't really know he like he like throws them he throws both theories at you and just lets you decide yeah and there was a rumor that um when antiochus epiphanes um he suppressed the jewish religion and the one early 160s BC, he uh, set up the abomination of desolation in the temple 
outlawed the Jewish religion, burned all the scriptures, so on and so forth. That when he entered the temple, he found a golden ass's head uh, from the same Egyptian god. So that rumor had been circulating for a while. It yes, and Man Manasius uh, was a yeah. third century BCE author who said the same thing. And then you get, then you get a third text, a third source from the Christians, from the early Christians that say that the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, was in the was in, was the was a Levite, and he was in the temple, and he lit his incense, and he. You know, he took his, uh, he did his uh, offering, whatever it was, he did his process. And all of a sudden, out of the smoke and the incense, there is Set, the donkey, God. And he's really, like, and yeah. And so Zechariah got muted by the God so that he couldn't tell anybody, but he left the temple like this. And everyone's mm -hmm. like, what, what'd you see? What'd you see? And he couldn't talk. He was muted and he, mm -hmm. could, he couldn't open his mouth until John the Baptist was born. So that was an that was an early Gnostic myth floating around about Yahweh mm. being set, and I don't know. Like, there's a lot of there's M. David Litwin did some scholarship on that. There's a lot of a lot of evidence for that. But the reason why I bring that up, and people, my audience might already know that story, you might not. But I'm trying to. There is a lot of alternate mythology going going around with this this Israelite uh story right yeah it's very fascinating um i guess what i want to end on is uh the ideas of plato where do these ideas come from because i mean plato's in a world that is very pagan very polytheistic everything's sort of you know is it is what it is what is is plato the first person to come up with monotheism or is was there already a uh, trend go in that direction. Is there anyone else besides Plato that are thinking of maybe there is just one God? Yeah, the um, the great natural philosophers, um, starting with Thales and through Anaxagoras, and you know all all the great Greek philosophers, they wrote about the origin of the universe, cosmogony. How did how did the universe come into existence? Um, and a lot of them suggested that there was a divine presence at the beginning of the universe, um, and that that's what set the universe into motion, because the Greeks believed that, um, um, you were, you needed a soul, a soul to have rational motion, you know, people they want to do something, they intend something, and so they walk there or, or, or act. Uh, it's their soul that's driving them. So the Greeks believed that all motion, self-initiated motion, came from a soul. They believed that magnetic rocks that were attracted and moved, that they had a soul in them. Wow. So, so to explain how the universe was set into motion initially, a lot of the Greek philosophers postulated a divine intelligence or soul at the beginning of the universe. And uh, that included Anaxagoras, who uh, 
he was right for atheism because he was too scientific. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, Socrates and, and, and Plato. Plato was a monotheist. Yeah, and I want I want to, say, I just, but he was also a polytheist, right? Uh, he in Timaeus he makes it clear that this creator craftsman God created the cosmos, uh, this perfect cosmos with the stars in the sky and all of that, um, and then he retired and left everything up to the regular Greek gods to run things afterwards. So Plato basically had his uh, monotheism and ate some polytheistic dessert on the side. But what's interesting about that is you you already have certain gods being called Anglos, messenger, uh, Hermes, for example. And then you have daemons who are lesser gods. So yeah. the, the, the structure of the monotheistic cosmology is already there it's just all you was like you had all these major gods that are called deos and then you have daemons which are lesser gods and now obviously angelos means messenger but like it, for me it's not a big stretch to go from one major deos theos and then daemons and then angelos good ones so that already seems to be there. And then, like you said, Anaxagoras, who's the second master after Thales to be, who call themselves philosophers in the line, in this certain line that come, comes out of ancient Greece. But I know something that you, I wanted to point out, and I want to just highlight this is like, it's interesting. It's so interesting to me that all the greatest the theological minds, not philosophical minds, the greatest theological minds always are getting tried for atheism like, yeah the ones who have the yeah. most the ones who change religion forever jesus socrates anaxagoras uh whatever whoever plato uh yeah. Pythagoras, they're always getting tried for for atheism yeah sure not, not people who are watching this who are you know maybe you're uh maybe you have a specific religious belief that you grew up in i'm not saying you should drop it or anything mm -hmm. But, but what I just want to ask you is, like, think about that for a second and be a little nicer to your atheist friends. They might be on to something. Huh. <laughs> that was a joke. But, um, no, I don't know. What are your any, – any last thoughts? I, I want to put your yeah. – I want to put a link for your books in the description. Um, both of the ones – the first one you talked – the Plato and the creation of the Hebrew Bible – as well as the other one was called uh, Manetho. Is it what was the other one called? Barosis in the um... Barosis in Genesis, Manetho and Exodus. Yes. But my most recent one is called, uh, it just came out this last year, is Plato's Timaeus and the Biblical Creation Account, um, Cosmic Monotheism and Terrestrial Polytheism in the Primordial History. Um, and it, it points out that Plato was unique in his monotheism in one respect. He put his monotheistic God and creation outside the physical universe. Nobody else did. Everyone else, their supreme God pervaded, occupied the whole physical universe. And he puts him outside back in the world of forms or whatever. So the Christian idea of this uh, 
God who's outside of physical reality living in heaven or whatever you want to call it. That is, uh, it's very platonic. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, I, I got to open this back up again because you're right. Plato has this idea of a God who is perfect, who cannot have nothing. He doesn't want anything. He's outside of time and space. And so it's interesting because how do we get that to God being able to be jealous? Because in the Old Testament, there's this constant thing where I'm a jealous God. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, and throughout Genesis, you have Plato's vision of the gods. The gods all get along. They play nice. Uh, you have um, Elohim, who is the creator god in Genesis 1. Then afterwards, you have Yahweh, who's a local earthly god, one of 70 gods running around on earth. He lives in Eden for a while. You know, and they're all scattered across the earth, and they all get along together. Well, you don't have any god disparaging any other god in all of Genesis, uh, which is basically the most philosophical book in the early Hebrew Bible. But the people who wrote uh, Exodus through Joshua, they were more connected with the temple, with Jewish nationalism. Uh, they just wanted uh, one God, Yahweh, you know, the God they worshipped in the temple. And every other God was bad. And Yahweh was jealous. He wouldn't let any other gods be worshipped. Plato specifically says, uh, you know, the gods are good. They aren't jealous. They are not jealous. Yeah. There's strife among them. So uh, <clears throat> there was a reaction against Plato that you see starting in the book of Exodus. And I talk a lot about that in my in my latest book on Plato's Timaeus, especially in the last chapter. Wow, that's interesting. So... So what do you how do so do you think there's just they didn't care about like having that discrepancy there and they just kind of threw that in there because that does seem to I know some people in the comment section are going to say hey isn't that a isn't that a um complete double standard that he can be jealous but he he's perfect in the in Timaeus Yeah I mean there's there's Plato's standard of good which is that the divine world is entirely good there's no evil in it gods get along um it's the realm of goodness that's what it is um that contrasted with greek mythology and homer and where you know the gods were fighting each other and it also is contradicted by uh you know exodus through joshua it's just yeah. contradicted by the intertestamental period when you had uh, Satan and demons and all sorts of uh, evil creatures in the divine world. So that's very anti-Platonic. Uh, Plato was a big influence to get it all started, but it, he was rejected very early on. I see what you're saying. That makes sense. Yeah. Wow. That is very fascinating. Um. Yeah, I guess the last thing I'll ask you is, 
do you when do you think so when the first Septuagint was put together, it was just the first five books of Moses. Yeah. When, when do you think these other prophets get put into the mix? Um, well, I think they were written for the most part um, in the second century BC after after the books of Moses. Most of them, except for Haggai, which appears to be authentic and dates to around you know, 500 plus BC. Wow! So you do think there was? So you do think there's a text for that predates all these? That's yeah. That's one, yeah. Wow. What yeah, about? That's one, that's one that seems absolutely authentic. Although there's a little editing going on. I get. I got you. What about like Ezra and Nehemiah? They're writing about all this political bickering between the high priest uh, Joshua and the Zerubbabel, the governor, and they seem to have knowledge of the time period, or do you think this is just knowledge that's passed down? Well, I do believe that they had access to certain uh, certain records and correspondence from the Persian area that was preserved in the Jewish temple. It includes the oracles that were found in Haggai, and then includes some of the correspondence in the book of Ezra. Uh, but Ezra and Nehemiah, they were written in the 200s BC. They're late, they're late sources, but they used earlier sources so to get a little bit of authentic. Okay, so you think there were sources around that they put into a coherent story? Yeah. I got you. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I definitely um, I definitely think that this is fascinating stuff. My camera's... Uh, uh, having some issues but it's okay we're done anyway but yeah links are in the description and i really want to thank you for your time and uh like i said links for, for your books in the description any last things you want to say a promotion or anything you want to do before we go go just how i enjoy being on your show and it's always a pleasure it's always my pleasure as well and you have just attained true gnosis You have just attained true gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over you. Jesus.